Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten. Well, good evening, and it's wonderful for you to join us again in the study of the book of Revelation. We are looking at a very interesting topic tonight, namely the 144,000. Uh, and uh, we hope that uh, we will be blessed uh, as we study this particular topic. Can I invite you just to bow your heads for just a moment and uh, we ask the presence of the Holy Spirit to be amongst us. Heavenly Father, it is indeed a privilege that we can study your word, that it is so readily available. And Lord, as we look at your work and we, we understand your message to us today, please strengthen our faith and our resolve to live according to your will and ways. In Jesus' precious name, amen. It is indeed a roadmap. Now we looked last week, we looked at the throne room of heaven, that, that incredible view that John there on the island of Patmos. And remember, the year is 95 AD. He gets his particular insight, which he shares then with us. We looked at the seven seals, which is very interesting, covering the same time periods of the seven churches, but more so from heaven's perspective. And we realized, we realized it was a matter of worthiness and Christ was worthy, the only one that was worthy to open the seals. And we started with the four horses of the apocalypse. Then we looked at the fifth seal, which is really uh, a cry for justice. Uh, how long, O Lord, and uh, holy and true, uh, until you judge and avenge? And we will certainly get that reply to that question as well. What I'd like to draw to your attention is, is the seal. The, the interesting thing about a seal is it is either an identity or it is a sign of possession or it is a, uh, what shall I say, a securing of nothing going in anymore and nothing coming out anymore. So these are the three connotations that you have to think about when we talk about the seals. You could say that Jesus owned the time of planet Earth because he was the one that was worthy to open the seals. And uh, that is what he, what, he, uh, what he did. For the great day of his wrath has come. Now, this was the last question that we uh, dealt with there in Revelation chapter 6. Because as the, the, there's a culmination in the natural world. So we have the Lisbon earthquake, 1755. We do have in 1780, the dark day of the sun, plus the subsequent three nights pretty well of blood redness of the moon. And then in 1833, we had this meteoric shower of a proportion that we haven't seen before and we haven't seen since. And it, all of these events are so well documented because they're not far from our history. And so, the last sign that we finish this in Revelation 6 is that the, that the heavens roll back like a scroll. That is the end of the earth as we know it. This, of course, involves the second coming and it's just prior to the second coming of Jesus. And a terrified people will ask this question, knowing full well that this is the end of the world. 
who will be able who will be able to stand that is the question the answer to that question is what we're dealing with here tonight that is the the reply that is given the qualification if you like that is given in chapter 7 as to who will be able to stand that's exactly what that is about so those who are sealed with the seal of the living God as recorded in chapter 7 is basically the answer to the question with which the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation closes and let's have a closer look at that after these things so he's seen the vision as recorded in chapter 6 now there's another vision after these things I saw four angels notice standing at the four corners of the earth notice holding the winds of the earth so we having the four directions of the compass east west north and south that clearly means it is a universal global affair what we're talking about here and the angels are holding back the winds and that should not blow on the earth now the symbolism is, is remarkable here. The winds, you'll understand, represents, of course, strife. The winds of strife. So there are angels. It's not just four. There are many angels involved in the affairs of this planet. And they're holding back the winds of strife. In other words, there is going to be a calamity, calamities on this planet as never before. And they're still holding back those winds of strife and it's interesting um, that it says and that the wind should not blow on the earth and on the sea and on any tree to damage this planet to upset the whole ecology of this planet then I saw John says another angel in addition to the ones that he just noted ascending from the east now when something ascends from the east you might straight away to mind comes that when jesus says that the son of man he will come from the east like the sunrise and so that is a form of deliverance i think of the book of isaiah where cyrus is a deliverer from the east when it comes from the east when in, in biblical uh, symbolism it comes from god and that's confirmed here because this angel has the seal of the living god the seal of the living god and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea now they have a control for as long as they hold it back when they let go well there's a saying in english all hell will break loose and that is the point of time where we're at so this is still imminent future saying to them saying to them do not harm the earth the sea and the trees and i've noted here something that you are perhaps not yet familiar with it talks about the seven last plagues you know the bible proposes that there will be seven last plagues just before the arrival of jesus and we need to know what they are and we will and study that at a later chapter i just want to draw your attention to it 
that before the second coming, the return of Jesus, that there will be tremendously upheavals, incredible upheavals on planet Earth. And so we should be prepared for that. And God has made provisions for his people. And so here there is the direction that it should be held back. Before those calamities fall on this planet, there has to be a ceiling. And the angel says to the other angels, until we have sealed the servants of our God. The ownership is guaranteed, the servants of our God. The seal here also represents a ownership. The servants of God are owned by God and they acknowledge that in their life. And so, on their foreheads, now that makes it very interesting. The forehead is where the intellect generally uh, is located. And so we have a, a let, me, let me put it, I like this phrase, that the seal that we are talking about here, on the forehead, is a conviction is a settling into a truth, an absolute truth, an intellectual and spiritual understanding and appreciation and realization of what God's plans are for us, humanity, and a complete surrender to the will of God. That to me really is the seal of God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. Now, he didn't count them. He heard the number. And this is interesting. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, let me explain. It must be crystal clear that we are dealing with symbolism. Because this is right at the end of the history of this planet. It would be unrealistic to expect that only 144,000 of Israel, children of Israel, literal Israel, would be sealed. As you well know, as we all know, the Jews do not accept Christ. They have rejected Jesus, still do. They don't want to know anything about the New Testament. Yet they believe they are still God's chosen people. So this is clearly not really talking about literal Israel. And I'll put the argument more forthfully to you as we go through the list. It has to mean spiritual Israel. And so, let's have a look. The Bible then explains, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. It begins with Judah. Judah was not the oldest, Reuben was, but Judah is perhaps the most prominent because Jesus himself came from the line of Judah. And so, let's go through the list. The tribe of Judah, 12,000. Note this. The tribe of Reuben, 12,000. The tribe of Gad, 12,000. The tribe of Asher, 12,000. The tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. The, the, the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. The tribe of Simeon, 12,000. The tribe of Levi, 
12,000. Tribe of Issachar, 12,000. The tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Now this is interesting. There were always 12 tribes. True. But the Levites did not have any territorial possession. So they weren't included. The tribe of Joseph did not exist. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And those tribes had material, had uh, territorial possessions. But not the tribe of Joseph, it was not known. So why is that listed here? Why a tribe of Joseph? And why do they include the tribe of Levite? And for that matter, as you might have noticed, we have 12 tribes. So if two of them that shouldn't be there are included, completing the number 12, which is a number of completion, then the, the question that is begging is who was left out of the regular 12 tribes? And that makes it a very interesting proposition. The 144,000 of the tribes of Israel, I'm going to put it to you, is about character. It is about character. Who is missing and why are they missing? Well, we didn't see the tribe of Ephraim. You know, Ephraim was normally, um, well, the biggest, one of the biggest of the northern ten tribes, and sometimes the whole of northern Israel was referred to as, as Ephraim. In fact, in fact, there's a statement, let me quote it, from Isaiah, the fourth chapter. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Ephraim is joined to idols. Ephraim is part of Israel, spiritual Israel, part of the church. But Ephraim, Ephraim, you understand, is attached to idols. And that disqualifies Ephraim. Here's another one that is interesting. The other one that is missing is the tribe of Dan. Dan means judge in Hebrew. And it says here in Genesis 49, this is uh, Jacob speaking as he blesses, he's dying, and he's blessing his sons, and he's, he's making predictions, if you like, concerning their sons. And of the characteristic of his son Dan, he says, Dan shall judge his people. Now, that is not a commission that Dan received, but it is a prediction of his behavior. Shall be like a serpent, by the way. You know, when people make accusations, when people make accusations, like gossip, there's no opportunity of defense. When people do that, when people do that, they are judging. And God hates that. In fact, uh, the Bible says God hates the pointing of the finger. The pointing of the finger is accusing. You know who the accuser is? Satan. The accuser, Hasatan in Hebrew, means just that. He is the accuser. And so Ephraim and Dan are part of spiritual Israel, if you like. And of course, these are characteristics that unfortunately disqualifies those two groups of people. It's worthy of a consideration. And that might explain why we have 
still the list of 12. I want to take you somewhere. We're just going to make a bit of a jump. We go a little bit ahead. The intriguing question, who are the 144,000? Well, we know they are sealed. And we know that the seal is on the foreheads. So it is the intellect, it is the understanding, it is the conviction, the comprehension. It's on the forehead and it's the seal of the living God. It is the seal of the living God. And the seal of Israel, we could agree on this, has nothing to do with current literal Israel. Because you ask any Jew at this stage which tribe they belong to, they couldn't tell you. And it would be very remarkable, even if they could tell you, that of every tribe, if they remembered or had documentation to identify them as belonging to a certain tribe, that you would have exactly 12,000 of each tribe. Again, the number of 12,000 is also symbolic. 12 is a number of completion. You find that in the 12 patriarchs. You find that in the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes, uh, the 12 foundations of Jerusalem, the 12 gates of Jerusalem. 12 is a number of completion. 10 in the Hebrew is also a number of completion. It means all of them. It means all of them. Times 10, that's an emphasis. Times 10, that is an even stronger emphasis. Can I put it to you? That God will save from all the characters of Israel the very maximum that he can save. 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. And so the seal of Israel here is, of course, spiritual Israel. We understand that. Right at the end time, that is spiritual Israel, no doubt about it. I want to read from Revelation 14. Now, I know we, we jump quite a few chapters, but it's worth it. Have a look at this. Have a look at this. He looks, he's got another vision. And behold, it says, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, it'll bear out, it's borne out by the text that this is a heavenly view. You remember John was invited to come up and look into heaven. There was a door inside heaven that was open into the throne room of God. He's still, he's still there in vision. A lamb standing on Mount Zion, heaven. And with him 144,000. There they are. They mentioned again. In chapter 14, the book of Revelation. Interesting. 144,000. There they are in heaven. Having his father's name. That is the Jesus father name written on their foreheads. Now we have an equation. The seal of the living God on the foreheads from chapter 7 is to be equated with his father's name. It is the same thing. Now, another word for name is character. They have become like the father's character. It means a compliance and an assimilary uh, so close to God the Father. Complete harmony. And so his father's name is to be equated with the seal of the living God. And so that makes another very interesting question in a minute. 
And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpers playing the harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before, notice, the living creatures, the elders. Remember chapter 4 and chapter 5? No one could learn that song. We're talking about the 144,000, except the 144,000 who were redeemed for the, from the earth. How could they learn that song, but someone else couldn't? It is because they went through an experience unique to them. It is an experience that is unique, that is unique right there at the end of Earth's history. And in a, to be able to, to be carried through that experience, to reach the other side of safety, if you like, they need to be sealed. They need to be sealed. And that is what the Bible teaches here. They were redeemed from the earth and they were sealed with the seal of the living God. These are those who were not, now notice, who were not defiled with women. Notice. They are virgins. Now, in biblical symbolism, a woman is a church. Now, they were not attached to any other church. They had the seal of the living God, the Father's name. They had the complete, they achieved a complete harmony with God. But they were not restricted or defiled by any particular influence. That's what it's trying to say. Those are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from among men. Remember, they were redeemed from the earth, being first fruit to God and to the Lamb. These, can I put this to you, are a people who go through the intensity of the upheavals, of the closing scenes of this earth's history. And they make it through until the second coming. You know, it's fascinating. There will be a people who will not see death. And that could be us, actually. If Jesus returned before we have been laid to rest, we will never know what it is like to be laid to rest, to die. And so these are the first fruit. They are already there before the even general resurrection. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That experience at the closing scene of this planet is so intense, they so completely surrendered to God. And that is the 144,000. Now many people say sometimes, well, isn't it true that the seal of God is the seventh day Sabbath? The fourth commandment. Yes, I, 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 like, I like the reality. It contains the name of God, the title. Uh, he's the creator and it's certainly the territory, heaven and earth. And that's the hallmark of a seal. True. But it is more than that. 
I grant you that the Sabbath is a sign. And the word in Hebrew for sign also can mean seal. The two are interchangeable. Mark, seal, sign can be interchangeable. The Sabbath is a sign, is a commemoration of creation. We know that. Chapter 20 of the book of Exodus spells it out. And that's not the only place. If I go to Exodus 31, there is another very important part uh, of meaning of the Sabbath. When God says to Moses, now you tell the children of Israel to keep the seventh day Sabbath holy. So they may know that I am the Lord their God who what? I am the Lord their God who sanctifies them. And you find that in Ezekiel as well. It is a sign of sanctification. And then the sealing makes a whole lot of sense, isn't it? How could you? How could you? This is a serious question. When the issue of a seventh-day Sabbath has been raised, as it, the Bible teaches as it will, and we'll talk more about that. How could you not observe that commandment? The very commandment, the only commandment who says, remember. How could you forget about the one commandment that begins with remember? Any apostasy, can I tell you this? Any apostasy of ancient Israel was preceded, initiated by compromise of a seventh day Sabbath. And that's something to think about. That's the way it was. And so the Sabbath is indeed central, but it is the whole law of God, as James puts it so well. If you break one, you break them all. And so there is the place of the Sabbath, the seal of God. And I remember what Ellen White said, the seal of God, the token or sign of his authority. It is all about whose authority? Well, it's God's authority. Is found in the fourth commandment. It affirms it. And so we recognize that. Now, interesting. Back to Revelation chapter 7. A multitude from the great tribulation. Have a look what it says here. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. So the multitudes that he's seeing now is not the multitude of the 144,000 because he heard the number. So it's a different group of people. Of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues. Nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. This is from all over the place, and can I put it to you, from all other times. The 144,000 are an end-time people. They come through the end time. You understand? They have that particular experience. But these are the ones that are the redeemed from all ages, I put to you. These are the ones from all, all nations, tribes, people and tongues and, and, and different eras. Standing before the throne 
and before the Lamb. This must be the result of the general resurrection of all those who are in Christ were laid to rest and brought back to life. And he, he has a view in heaven and he sees them. He says, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, that is Christ, clothed with white robes, which means uh, justified, purified, holy, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that of course is Jesus. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne. They worshipped God and they were saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This is a glorious scene where all the redeemed are in heaven. That's fantastic. You know, we... Uh, we could be part of that scene. It'd be something, wouldn't it? Would it be something? And so, then one of the elders, now one of the elders answered and said to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? Now, when you look at this question, you think oh, he's speaking of the great multitude in white. Now, can I put it to you that anybody that's in heaven is purity, white. It's not about the white robes. I believe they all are. But the question is, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? That's very interesting. Could not really be the 144,000 because they were spiritual Israel right at the end of time. Or could it? It's an interesting question and there are different opinions on this. I put it to you that I think that this elder is referring to the 144, even though we know they are spiritual Israel at the end time, do we really know where they actually come from? The others came from tribes, nations, all over the world. It's an interesting question. So where did they come from? That's the question because the elder is actually verbalizing what goes into the head of John. And he said to him, John said to this elder, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. I think that's where the answer is. The great tribulation, the winds of strife held back by the four angels. These are the end time people. This is the 144,000 that we are referring to. And washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That means, that means they are covered by his righteousness. And they let him work in them and through them completely in surrender to the will of God. And therefore they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell amongst them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
in the background of this statement, I can see the seven last plagues, which we still have to study, and we will. And it says here, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. Isn't that beautiful? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be a complete consolation. There will be no more reason to be sad, to have sorrow. One day that is going to be gone. It won't be there. Now, one more consideration. And I'll take you now to the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation, which actually has to do, it's the prelude to the seven last plagues. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that further when we come to it. I just want you to see something. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. This is a heavenly view. And, um, and he says here, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and there those who have the victory, I want you to listen to this, those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, in fact, over the number of his name. Now, this is what we will study later on. There are a number of issues here. The beast, in fact, the last item is the number, and we have the image, and we have the mark of the beast, something we have yet to study. But that is an end-time situation. It paints an end-time phenomenon which the people of God who have been sealed have to deal with at the closing scenes, the last time period before the end of this world. There will be tremendous issues coming our way. The book of Revelation truly is a roadmap. It, it, it truly is. Let, let, let me explain. When you look at world history, there have been incredible persecutions. Incredible. And yet there have been peaceful times. Take us. Here we are. We, we can worship in freedom and we take it for granted. But that has not always been the case. In fact, when you look at the history of this earth, prosecutions and, 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 and the hostility and the animosity towards the, the people of God have been very, very prominent. Just towards the end, that will happen again. And it really becomes, to me, a roadmap, doesn't it? How should we behave? What should we do? How shall we live? It's an important question. And so we all have to answer that and live it. And so he paints the picture standing on the sea of glass. Now that's the same location as the previous vision. It's interesting in chapter 15, they're not called 144,000, but because the qualification that they go through the end time and have to deal with the beast, the mark, the image, and the number, it most certainly identifies the 144,000. Having harps of God because they gain the victory. Note this, they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, 
and the song of the Lamb. I think that's to be equated with the song that no one else could learn. Only those who went through that experience. You know, the reality is that this could be us. Times are changing so rapidly. You look at this year, what a year we have had. What a year. I was just thinking this morning, terrible bushfires, droughts, it was incredible. Then the COVID-19. What we learned from the first half of this year is for certain that we cannot predict the second half of this year. Would you agree with that? We are wholly dependent upon a God who's in control on the one who was worthy to open the seals. And so, next week, the seventh seal, because we are now have been dealing with a parenthetical proposition of the seventh chapter that is an explanation to the question of chapter, uh, chapter six. It's interesting that we are going to look at the seventh seal, and you don't want to miss that. Revelation chapter 8. And in fact, we're going to have a look at the seven trumpets. He saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, these seven trumpets, let me explain right now, are the seven trumpets of the Revelation are in fact a third outline of prophecy. We've had the seven churches. We just about dealt with the seven seals. And now we have the seven trumpets dealing pretty well with the same era, right to the end, to the culmination of the history of planet Earth. I think you want to be here and you want to listen to chapter 8 of the book of Revelation, which will be our study for next week. And again, if there are any questions, can I remind you, waitaraadvent at gmail.com. Feel free to do so. In the meantime, shall we have a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your guidance, your provisions. And we thank you that because you are in control, we can trust you with every single provision that you have made for our well-being. Lord, thank you for being our God. Help us to study, to understand, to retain, and then to be able to share with others the wonderful news, the wonderful story, the wonderful assurances as they come from your word. Bless us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit waitarachurch.org.au. There's a lamb on Mount Zion with his
his people standing near. A hundred and forty-four thousand with their father's seal. Then I heard a voice from heaven, like waters loud and clear. And the music started playing. He had wiped away their tears, and they sang as it were a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the one hundred and forty-four thousand who were redeemed from the earth. The pure ones, the virgins, redeemed from among men. Their mouths had no deceit before the throne. They were clean. They proclaimed the three angels' messages to every nation far and wide. Fear God and give Him glory. Make sure you're on His side. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the one hundred and forty-four thousand who were redeemed from the earth. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And they sing as it were a new song before the was Kayla Carice with the song The 144,000 from Revelation chapter 14. Up next, they sang a new song by Ryan Day. I looked and lo, I saw a lamb High on the holy mountain He stood and I beheld him there 
Welcome to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm your host, Alan Sonter, and I'm glad you could join me. The first episode in our series was called, Is There a God? And I gave evidence to support my answer. Yes, there is a God. Now our second question is, what is God like? There are three sources of information about God. The first is what he has said about himself in the Bible. The second is what we can discover about the Creator by studying the things he has made. And the third is by looking at the ways he deals with us personally. The Bible claims to be a record of God's dealing with this world and the people in it. It starts out by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and ends by saying that God will make a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be no death or sorrow. The story of what went wrong with the first heaven and earth that God made, that is the one we live in now, and what God has done to correct the problem and make possible a new heaven and earth is really what the Bible is all about. In telling this story, the Bible gives us a great deal of knowledge about what God is like. But before we look at what the Bible says about God, we will look briefly at the evidence that confirms that the Bible really is, as many Christians call it, the Word of God. I'll use two lines of evidence here. One is the historical accuracy of the Bible, and the other is that it contains predictions, often called prophecies, about the future. And many of these have already been fulfilled. The fact that the Bible has been shown by archaeology and history to be a genuine record of the past, and not just a fable, is evidence that its claim to be God speaking to us should be taken seriously. Its prophecies or predictions, which have been accurately fulfilled throughout history, are evidence that it is more than just the writings of people depending on their own ideas. Its writers were given insights that only God could have given them. For these reasons, I believe that we can accept the Bible as being an accurate record of the past and a truthful statement of what God says about himself. The Bible tells us that God created human beings to be in some way like himself. Exactly which of our characteristics are like God, we can only deduce from what we are told about God. It's possible that our ability to think and our emotions and perhaps even our physical likeness may in some way be a pale reflection of God. God has a personality. He isn't just an influence or a power source. But we're told that God is infinite in power, knowledge and wisdom and knows everything, past, present and future. He has lived from eternity in the past and will continue throughout eternity in the future. Or, to put it in the way the Bible does, he lives from everlasting to everlasting. It's beyond our understanding to think of someone who has always existed and always will. Everything in our experience, at least, has a beginning and usually an ending. Human beings have always had a problem trying to understand what someone as complex as God is like. 
When Jesus Christ was here on earth, he called himself the Son of God and said that if we want to know what God is like, we should look at him, Jesus, because when we have seen him, we have seen his Father. What Jesus Christ, who was really God, was doing here on earth will be explained in a later presentation in this series. But for the present, we will just say that he came here as part of God's plan to fix up the problems we have got ourselves into. In the second part of the Bible, called the New Testament, we are given four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ here on earth. They were written by four men, two of whom were his companions when he lived in Palestine about 2,000 years ago. These accounts are important because they present a picture of what God is like as demonstrated by his Son, Jesus Christ. The picture we find in these four accounts, often called the four Gospels, is that Christ was a kind and loving person who went about doing good, healing sick people, showing people how to live happy lives and telling them how to become his followers. He said he would take his followers into the new earth that he would establish and they would live there forever with him. He taught us to call God our Father in heaven. So we understand that God is a loving being concerned for our welfare in the same way as a good father here on earth is concerned for the good of his children. Jesus said that God is fair and just and is more than willing to give good things to those who ask him. Jesus was always willing to forgive people who did him wrong and he encouraged those who were forgiven or healed to turn away from the wrongdoing that had caused their troubles. Much more could be said about what the Bible tells us God is like. But what I've said is enough for now in the limited time we have. You might like to get a Bible and read it for yourself. The second source of information about God is to be found all around us in the things he has created. As with any object made by someone, by looking at the object, you can get an idea of the skill and creativity of the maker. What God has made is infinitely more complex than anything people can make. And there's such a variety in nature that we know God is amazingly creative. Just think of the many kinds of birds with all their different colours and shapes, yet they were all fitted for the way they live. Or consider the seemingly endless variety of flowers, yet all have their purpose. And God is a brilliant engineer. Notice the construction of animals with their freedom of movement, their strength and agility. And God is truly imaginative in solving design problems. The design of the honeycomb, for example, is an engineering marvel. There is no limit to God's power to think of ways to accomplish the seemingly impossible. Think of the range of ways God has made for various living things to reproduce themselves. Recent discoveries about cell DNA and the success of Scottish scientists in cloning a sheep from a single mature cell give some idea of the mind-boggling complexity of the cell, this microscopic unit of life. And yet, God has made these cells so that a whole organism can be built from a single cell. 
and consider the beauty of nature around us. God has built into us the ability to appreciate the created things around us, so he must be a good God who enjoys making his creatures happy. The precision and stability of the planetary systems, along with the continually changing cycles of nature, tell us that God has finally balanced stability and change, a feat that demonstrates his infinite power and intelligence. Of course, not everything we see in nature tells us what God is like, because an enemy has attacked this world and introduced cruelty, suffering and death. The Bible tells us about that, and we'll deal with the problem of suffering in a later presentation in this series. But there is enough that is good in nature to leave us wondering in admiration at the skill of its designer and maker. Finally, we can learn something about God from the way he deals with us. However, we must be careful here, because not all that happens to people is what God wants. Because our enemy, Satan, wants to ruin our lives and produce suffering and death, and because God allows him some freedom of action, there are times when terrible things happen, even to good people. But for those who love God and have asked him to direct their lives, God, in Romans 8.28 in the Bible, does give an assurance that he will work out everything for their ultimate good. For those of us who have experienced the truth of this assurance, God's dealing with us does show that God is truly good and he has an amazing ability to overrule complex situations so that his objectives for our lives can be met. During this presentation, I have alluded to an enemy, Satan, who is trying to spoil God's work and our lives. The question I will answer next is, who is Satan? I believe you will find the answer interesting. You've been listening to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm Alan Sonder, and I hope you can join me next time. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.